And welcome to this episode of G220 Radio. This is episode number 542. I think I got it right. And the topic is, what are the Millers talking about? It's um, kind of came up in the last minute. Uh, originally, we had planned to do Proverbs 18. Ricky wasn't able to uh, join us tonight. He has to, some issues that he has to deal with um, with his home. So um, kind of changing it up. And I brought my wife on, Catherine. You've seen her comments pop up every once in a while. And occasionally, <clears throat> occasionally, yeah. <laughs> and just kind of to, I guess, just talk about what we've been discussing. Obviously, not on air, but when we're driving or other things based on stuff that we are reading. And this is really hopefully beneficial to think about just even the topics that we're talking about, but even just kind of a glimpse into the Miller home when the kids are away, the adults talk theology. That's kind of what happens. I mean, in our defense, we also talk theology when they're around. It's just a little harder to get full sentences out. (laughs) Yeah. And we have more time because we can Mm -hmm. talk in the car without them interrupting. For sure. Though, I guess in one sense, in reading, they get to hear good theology in some of the mm. books we read but we, we do read a lot in the car yeah yeah so this is kind of a topic you thought of yeah i was hesitant i know but <laughs> kind of what well, how is this going to work kind of your so the reason i wanted to do this is because i feel extremely blessed to have a husband that can talk theology with me and explain things to me very well. Um, and that shares so many common interests. So for anyone that doesn't know, um, I also have a master's in biblical studies. So we have a lot of similar backgrounds. Um, we've read a lot of the same books, a lot of different books though. Mm -hmm. Um, but we have a lot of common interests in like church history and theology and, I mean, I'm a little more obsessed with cults and world religions than you are, but, you know, same, (laughs) same areas of interest. And I think that when you are just chatting with me and we're just kind of throwing ideas around in the car or just like hanging out at the dining table, you are at your absolute best, um, like answering things and helping me when I can't remember the names of people or (laughs) books or Something like that. So what I wanted to do is give everyone a little bit of a glimpse into what our conversations look like. Um, and I mean, you you maybe should be a little nervous. I'm going to put you in the hot seat <laughs> and ask you some questions, but I think it'll be good. So um, I want to start with podcasts, actually, rather than books. Okay. So I have been listening to the Sheologians for years now, pretty yeah. much since they started. Um, and they are associated with Apologia Radio, which I've also listened to some, but not quite as much as um, Sheologians. 
And I, I really enjoy a lot of their content. There are some areas that we would disagree theologically, but for the most part, I find their commitment to, I guess, um, excellence in everything that they do. I'm probably going to use the word excellence a lot in the next few minutes, but that's okay. <laughs> I don't know a better word for it. Um, and I really enjoy that they always convict me about small things that I never would have thought about before. So I've been listening to them for a really long time. Um, I know a little bit about their theological background, the church that they go to. Um, I know that they are post-mill. Yep. Um, and they would tend to be theonomists. Yep. Right? So um, I, I've recently been listening to another podcast called um, Stories Are Soul Food by Andy Wilson, who is the son of... The other famous Wilson. What's the other Wilson's first name? The dad's Doug name? Doug Wilson. Douglas Wilson. Yes. Or Doug Wilson. Okay. Also a theonomist. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I have been loving this podcast, um, Stories Are Soul Food, because they spend so much time thinking deeply about um, how we honor God with good stories and just like excellence in our creativity in every sphere of our lives, whether that's in business or music or the arts or just home life. Um, And in this case, they're specifically talking about stories, but they're thinking really deeply about stories that are good and valuable and um, food for the soul, quite frankly, whether they are actually Christian stories or not. Um, so like an example would be uh, Narnia would be more of a Christian story concept, but like the Lord of the Rings, where there are themes that mimic biblical truths um, and that they are good soul food. So I've been loving that and I've been talking to you a lot about it lately. And I thought, yeah. hmm, there's something here. I love the spirit and the intensity of looking for and seeking to be excellent in everything you do. And I, I'm only seeing that uh, pretty much from this camp of people who are reformed, right? So we have similar beliefs in that we're reformed. Some people would probably say not, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> coming at least, to be fair, at least coming from the reformed tradition. We'll, okay. We'll talk about it. Okay. And that kind of the broader... Um. Yeah, I mean that's going to be skin to the debate. So, what is reformed? What does that mean? Is Baptist reformed? Reformed Baptist reform? Um, okay. But to say to think about it, at least, and to consider how they where they're coming from, they come from a reformed stream of thought. Okay, which we would too. We're reformed yeah. Baptists. So, um, so then really the difference would be for me that they are theonomists. So first, can you give like a quick snippet of what that means for someone to be a theonomist or to believe in theonomy? So, yeah, um, I know I'll probably get slacked. So this is not a precise definition, uh, just to put it out there. Told you you'd be in the hot seat. Yeah. But theonomy holds the view that God's law 
including the ceremonial, what we would possibly call a ceremonial and the um, moral judicial law um, should be applied even today with their punishment. So you have one of you, which we probably hold to you is that you have the idea that there are principles in which may guide, may guide our politics. We may vote with these principles that come from the judicial and ceremonial laws, probably more judicial, less ceremonial, but there's these like, principles that come in there. They take it, I think a, f- a step further into saying, well, those, those punishments should be the same. And so you'll hear um, sometimes like not just we shouldn't sell that we shouldn't ban homosexual marriage, but there should be some criminals that might be more farther out, you know, it, but there's that kind of idea that um, the the punishments in which God are also that God has given to Israelites also should be kind of applied in our context, kind mm-hmm. of our judicial system. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put this in my own layman's terms. So feel free to correct me, but I would say theonomists are are thinking that the world should be run as the Bible describes justice. And um, so basically we should live in a biblical society, even if it's full of non-believers. And so you'll see a lot of like um, pro-choice movements where they're like abolish all, like let's not step it back and say no abortions after a certain time frame. Let's just do everything we can to make abortions completely criminal from day one. And And that's not just a theonomist view. Correct. Yes. But I know a lot of theonomists that embrace that. Yeah. I think there's, I think a good way to think about is obviously just to define the word theonomy comes from theos and nomos, which God's law, law. God laws, God's law. And that there is this aspect in which the punishments also continue over from the old covenant to the new covenant um, in the way of life. It's not just where we would agree. Well, I'll just, I'll speak for myself. Like I agree with abolishing abortion uh-huh. um, and that that should be the play to move that mm-hmm. we should just abolish it. Cause it is, evil mm-hmm. and even kind of thinking through whether the mother should be um at times they're not the victims as people play and that can be the discussion mm-hmm. you know are they should they be prosecuted should they be prosecuted yeah. for murder or a sec accessory to murder mm-hmm. might be a, another way um to think about it but there is this kind of a more the government should rule with the same punishment. So if it's the death penalty and kind of the old covenant, it should be also the death penalty right. kind of in the government now, yeah. which maybe not all things shouldn't be, but that should, it's not 
because it's with the judicial law and the old covenant, therefore it should also apply now. Okay. Um, to think about. And I think there is that kind of that, the, the difference in kind of then the application of the judicial punishments within the society. So, so this theonomist view tends to be wrapped up with um, post-mill views, right? Theonomy, yes. So theonomy... You're not going to find a lot of pre-mill theonomists or on-mill theonomists? No. Okay. At least all the ones I know are all not just post-mill, they're reconstructionist post-mill. That's where I wanted to head, yeah. Um, which is different than... Um, would kind of be classified maybe as um, Puritan post-mill. Okay. So talk to us about what Reconstructionist post-mill is then. So let's kind of, I want to think about the Puritan and then move into, I think there's the connection there and wholehearted Christian. Thanks for watching. I see you there in the comment. <laughs> um, so kind of when the Puritans think about kind of the Puritan post-mill, there is this advancement in which the gospel moves forward and the world in one sense becomes better because the gospel's moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, people are being saved. You're still going to have non, you're still going to have unbelievers, but it, there is this kind of a sense maybe in to use an example of David's rule and maybe Solomon's rule where the gospel is prevailing there is truth and justice and things are moving. And so you kind of this progressive um, gospel dominance as it moves through. Now with re, kind of the reconstructionist post mill, from what I can understand and kind of what I think leads to what we're going to talk about, which I think is, is fruitful for even us who are not this, um, Reconstruct post mill is that it's more than just this gospel advance, but that Christians need to go out and be intentional about creating Christ center businesses, entertainment, and use them to proclaim the gospel, present truths which I think in one sense is maybe a byproduct from the Puritan post mill. Um, But there's a lot more engagement and you see this, I mean, Apologia is doing this Mm -hmm. when they had like Apologia um, TV with the nighttime TV show, something that is trying to counter what you see with the late night with Mm -hmm. um, Jimmy Fallon or something like that. Or someone like David that. Letterman was the only thing coming. To <laughs> yeah. Mind. Yeah. Um, okay. So Puritans would say the gospel will naturally change our world because that's what the gospel does. It changes people. Yeah. It changes hearts. Right. And mm-hmm. people are the drivers of the culture. Whereas a reconstructionist would say we need to be intentionally changing the world and our culture through our biblical pursuit of excellence in business, in our homes, in parenting, in all of these things. So, so this is where I really hit this crook of, okay, I actually am not post mill. 
I would not say that I am a reconstructionist or um, even really a theonomist. I'm not sure that I would fall in line with that. But I do really resonate with this idea of pursuing excellence in in all of our areas. And I, (laughs) even though I went to seminary, I have to admit the one thing that I regret not paying better attention to was end times views. Yeah, I just really struggle in that area. In fact, you were basically the only reason I made it through that systematic theology uh, class because I did not understand any of the eschatology portion. Um, So talk to me a little bit about how that connects. How do we connect our end times view, this post-mill reconstructionist view with this pursuit of excellence in everything that we do? Like they they want to create a better world, right? Yeah. Through their gospel beliefs. And that is why they seek to write stories that are good stories that reflect mm-hmm. God's goodness. And they they look for to be the best of everything, to not just make a Christian movie, but to make a really good movie. They should have better production, better actors, better yeah. everything, right? So I love that. Um, But as someone that doesn't actually follow in those camps, I find it interesting that it's, that it is mainly coming from this um, belief system. So what, (laughs) for people that are all mill or pre mill, how do we address that? How do we embrace the search for excellence, glorifying God in everything that we do? Um, how how do we better reflect that? So yeah, I think there's kind of to think through the issues because um, I know we talked to we've listened to a podcast with um, Andrew Peterson and Dr. Moeller yes. and thinking in public talking about stories and just the arts in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you just don't have unlike. In this case, I'll go with Catholicism. A lot of yeah. art. There's not this kind of come art coming out of Protestant beliefs. Mm-hmm. Not that art is wrong. Now, there may be times in which we can say medieval art maybe tended too much sinful to a sinfulness, um, and what they're depicting. Uh, but what Dr. Moeller points out in this podcast, I think it's important to think about, is for a Catholic like J.R.R. Tolkien, mm. they can think about evil and like plunge the depths of evil mm-hmm. and then go to the priest and ask for forgiveness. Yes. And what yeah. I think we see here with this kind of reconstruct post-mill is that with their belief system in post-mill and that everything is going to better and there's a sense in which Christians need to change the culture and be the best, that they're thinking about these things that pre-mills and all-mill, while may think about, but don't pursue. Another story, this is Dr. Muller reflecting on just two different dispensational schools. You have... Moody Institute in downtown Chicago, and then Biola, the Bible Institute of Los mm-hmm. Angeles in LA. And Biola is 
criticizing Moody because they're making beautiful buildings. Flip that. Moody is criticizing Biola. Biola has the beautiful buildings, is right? It? Okay. I thought it was the other way around. Maybe I'm listening. Maybe I'm sorry. Anyways, one of the schools <laughs> is criticizing the other school because they're putting all this money into something that's going to be destroyed. And whoa, 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 whoa. Biola is, are they Catholic? No, they're, they're both different types of, they're both dispensational evangelical schools. Okay. So then what would be the difference between them that would drive how they would think about their campuses and the beauty in their campuses? I think kind of remember this, remembering stories, just one is, well, if God's going to destroy this world, why do we need to make something that lasts? Mm -hmm. Why do we need to put the effort into making, it's almost in like a function that maybe tend to be, it should just be functional for what we need to do. Right, function over form. Function over form. And obviously this isn't, hasn't been the predominant position Mm -hmm. within the church in a way, especially in light of Middle East, Middle Middle Age Catholicism, in which they're building big cathedrals and beautiful cathedrals. Our dog is in the background, like yeah. scratching the the thing. Sorry, I. But yes, I. It does bother me that Baptist churches aren't very beautiful. Yeah, in general, like in comparison to cathedrals, and even the Presbyterian and Lutheran churches usually have a seat. Yeah, <laughs> they're usually a lot prettier. And. It's with theology. Are we thinking like how we think about this is where eschatology plays. I think sometimes we think about millennial debates as just bickering between Christian groups. Right. Yes. But there are these ideas, this bickering plays itself out. How we think about the culture, how we think about what God is doing as it, as history marches towards the second coming plays a part in this. And that, that story between Moody and Biola, Biola shows like, well, the one is just functional. Why are we building these grand buildings that God's going to destroy in the second coming? Mm-hmm. And so I think kind of that, Within the Reformed tradition, although it's not always the case, I think there is some, in one sense, renaissance in thinking about these things that that there's some that we're losing the culture, and now it's making us to think about it about it. What do we do? In it, how do we win the culture? How do we turn this tide? And I and I think this leads to a post that post mill is theologically equipped to think about it in ways that maybe a post mod or a pre mill, yeah, whether historic or dispensational pre mill, and the differences there are all millennial. Um, think about it. I think all millennial maybe even more equipped than pre mill. Mm. And to thinking about, I mean, that God's ruling on it. But I do think there is thinking about eschatology's way leads us to how we act. And I mean, this has been more of a development, even in my own thought. There's been times I was like, does does 
eschatology really matter outside of maybe understanding eschatology in its salvific form as we consider Genesis 3.15 and the gospel storyline moving in those times. But I think with the rise of apologia, especially in the Baptist circles, it's really kind of focused on what does it mean to engage the culture with the gospel and how do we do that? And I think that's where the reconstruct post mill can be beneficial to think about. Cause you do have, what does it mean to do all things for the glory of God? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? How can we do it? And is art like, how does art fit into this idea or music? I mean, what's when you think about what's required to be worship in the church. Mm-hmm. It's the preaching of the word, it's prayer, and it's singing. It's music. Not that all music has to be for the church, but there's an importance there that I think maybe we focus more on church to be sung in or music to be sung in the church and not and kind of to maybe consider more what does it mean to be a Christian artist mm-hmm. or a Christian writer and to just write good stories? This is kind of what we've, yeah. you, you've been thinking about with the Andy Wilson podcast and to, <laughs> to, to think about these more. Cause I do think there is a importance. And then how do we engage Sorry, I just read the comment. Yeah. No, no Ricky. the Millers are not becoming post-mill theonomists. What I wanted from this is to say, hey, pre-mills, ah-mills, let's do better at pursuing excellence in all the areas of our lives. Mamas, seek out good stories to read to your kids. Find good music that is, I mean melodies are honoring to God because God is the author of order and music is math and order, right? Yeah. So if you find something beautiful in like a Coldplay song and the lyrics are not dishonoring to God, recognize and teach your children to recognize the beauty in the order that God has created in this music, whether the authors of that song knew that they were reflecting God's glory or not. So no, not not becoming post-mill theonomists in the Miller household. Just just recognizing that this is maybe a need um, and wanting to make sure we drive our own household in that direction of God's beauty and goodness. Do you have a thought or can I move on to the culture concept? Yeah, I think kind of thinking through that, this is where we're always good with like application. That's Mm -hmm. like you go from exegesis to theology to application. That's kind of the process. We have a podcast. Um, we have episodes on that. And we try to do that regularly in how we show things. And the question, I think sometimes, even in churches, is it's more home, it's more particular to maybe me and my household. Instead of thinking, or it's really like national kind of politics in in one sense. Mm. 
And I know kind of, you know, thinking about culture and moving there is that, I mean, there's that, this, this statistic and no one knows really, there's been more data, but that kids in the church, majority of leave when they go to college. And that's the, the question is, how do we, how do we keep them? How do we train them up? Is, is that's, that's kind of the question yeah. to be answered. Obviously, relying on the spirit, hoping they're regenerated and to thinking about it. But I think this is where the church is maybe pushing and we need it. So this is not completely wrong, but I think what's wrong is being exclusively kind of a personal application, which is needed, but kind of thinking about it, branching out more what does not just kind of a broad but then being specific in how we understand the applications and understanding that when we talk about how the bible is god's story to us and it's the redemptive story it's how he promises to save us and we see it Mm -hmm. now what does that mean and how we tell stories Mm -hmm. how do we communicate the way that God has, com- in one sense, God has communicated to us and his condescending to us. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm going to riff on the culture concept because as this always happens, when the Lord reveals a topic to you or a, a, a new, like a prism, you know, like it, you see something in a slightly new light, mm-hmm. you start seeing it everywhere you go in every podcast you listen to every book that you happen to be reading, like you start seeing aspects of it. So I've been reading, I don't know if this is going to flip, but, um, Joe Rigney's strangely bright. Um, this is excellent. I highly recommend it. And I'm only like three chapters in. Um, but he is talking about how you can love God and also enjoy this world. Um, and he talks about how we enjoy God's creation, right? His general revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we worship him in that way, but how that culture is actually part of his creation because we as human beings are his creation and we reflect his nature by also being creative. So our culture that we create is something that can and usually does reflect God's glory. Now, sin taints that, right? So we have to be mindful of yeah. idolatry and making sure that that our, we're not embracing the things in our culture that are um, defaming God's name, right? Uh, or not reflecting his glory. But Joe Rigney um, has a quote about culture. He says that culture is a mixture of God's creation and man's creativity, So when we faithfully mingle our creative labor with God's creation, we glorify the things of earth. So he gives an example of bread. God's creation would be the grain and the yeast and the water and all the ingredients, but it's man's creativity that really glorifies that grain and creates something tasty and wonderful with some butter, right? So um, this is another topic that we've sort of been riffing on. Have you worried there about theonomy? Sorry, Will. Sorry, Will. Yeah. 
No, this is, we, <laughs> welcome to the Miller household. <laughs> we do this. We talk about things like other views and how we're not shifting there, but, but what other viewpoints do well that maybe we're missing out on mm-hmm. and how we can improve that. So, um, so we're talking a little bit about glorying in God's creation, whether that is the, the natural world we see around us or things in culture, like a good baseball game or food. Um, I have a favorite book called Broken Bread by Tilly Dillahay um, that talks about how uh, gluttony, which we see a lot in America, um, is actually not that we love food too much. It's that we don't love food enough. We don't actually, we just sort of eat without thinking about it. Whereas the love of food that is glorifying to God um, is, is a love that doesn't keep pursuing that same first bite over and over go. And, and your first bite is always the tastiest bite. And then progressively, as you get full, God created us so that it doesn't taste as good by the time you get to your full state and how, um, loving food. Well, loving that first bite well means that you stop eating when it doesn't taste good anymore. You stop trying to pursue after, your first experience over and over, which, by the way, is a topic that is um, hinted at and kind of explored in C.S. Lewis's Paralandia, which Paraland, wait, Paralandra, there we go. Um, it's one of his sci-fi series. But you've been reading something about the glory of God's creation as well. Did you want to share what you've been reading? So, yeah, so I've been reading a book. It's not for the faint of heart. Um, <laughs> it's academic. It's more it academic, academic than devotional. Um, it's, it's from Christopher, Christopher R.J. Holmes. It's part of the study of in Christian doctrine scripture. And it's called The Lord is Good, Seeking the God of the Psalter. So you have in the Psalms, the, I, the, the, the words God is good. And what does that mean and to think about God's goodness in light of his simplicity that is he is um not he is spirit he is um try that he he is what his attributes are so when we say God is love when God is just God is um, good. These are who he is and he is not any of that. And then, so in this idea is that he acts purely so that when he acts, he, when he does, when he acts good, it is because he is good in and of himself. And to think about then he's kind of moving into this, understanding God's goodness in relation to his essence that God is Yahweh. God is who he is, who he is self-existent, but that we can only know God's existence in his goodness. So it's one thing to say God exists. It's another thing to say God is good Mm. and that not only does he exist in his essence of who he is, he is good and he can only act good. 
And then so you have creation. And to think about the heavens declare God's glory, Psalm 19, 1, and that when he creates in Genesis 1, the repeated frame, and it was good, shows kind of in God's creation that creation is God being good. His creation now reflects his essence. Mm -hmm. And that creation can only be good in relation to God who is good. Mm. Yeah. And in that sense shares the likeness of God. So God's createdness, being created, creating the world, is now in one sense like him in that it is good it is just obviously with genesis 3 we see the corruption of the goodness of creation but that's not a reflection of the creator because the creator caused it to be good something else came opposed and then to to think about that then in that obviously we can create things that are bad and it's tainted with sin that's what happens but the fact that we want to create good things mm-hmm. and that throughout history we have created things to, in one sense, have dominion over this world as we're called to have and to work. Again, work being created by God for man to do, to tend his world, is good. Mm-hmm. And then to think of kind of that goodness, God's goodness in that way, and just that even him condescending down, coming to come down from heaven to reveal himself to us is also then a sign of his own goodness. That scripture is then good. It tells us about who God is. We can only say God is good in relation that we were told that he is good, especially in a fallen state that cannot fully comprehend God in creation because of sin. I think um, Calvin, there, there's one sense in which we have to have special revelation and Calvin bl- um, kind of blows this out because sin has tainted how we view the world. Mm-hmm. And if there is no sin, then there's no reason for special revelation because we can see creation and know there's a God and we can know this God. Now we can expand this more. There are things that without sin, we couldn't know about God, like his mercy and his grace or even his wrath. God's wrath isn't a, what we would say an essential attribute of God. Mm. It comes off of the fact that God is just and that he rightly and with, because of his justice and because he has to deal with sin, that's how wrath wrath is, that's where wrath is connected. So if there is no sin, God does not show, cannot show his wrath. Yeah. We had this conversation six months ago or so when we were reading Ortland's book. Uh, what's the um, name of Ortland's book? I can't think of it. Yeah. Um, gentle and lowly. Gentle and lowly. Um, and that was, that was another topic that we talked through quite a bit, the difference between an attribute because when we think about attribute we're like oh well what's that thing like 
Um, and we would say that God is just, God has wrath. Um, and so sometimes uh, I am even quick to say, oh, sure, that's an attribute of God, but you're right. An attribute, a true like core attribute of God has more to do with what he is like, not, um, I guess, outside of interaction with sinful creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then then he those attributes inform his reactions like his wrath. Um, his mercy. His, his mercy, grace. yeah. Where do you have but that, that was God really... he's, who is just, who cast to punish sin, but who also is love mm-hmm. and loves the creation that he's made. And mm-hmm. now you have kind of the recipe for God acting merciful, being merciful and gracious to sinners who don't deserve it. Right. So his love, which we would say is an attribute, yes. informs his reaction, I don't know what a better term for that would be, but his reaction of yeah. mercy, right? Yeah. It's, it is rooted in his attribute of love, but we wouldn't say that mercy is a core attribute. It's more of a, res- it's his attribute it's informing how, his response to sinful man. It's how we, it's how we experience his love as sinners. Yes. Yeah. I think it'd be a way, because it's not that God is, you know, obviously reacting it it appears to us in that way mm-hmm. um not that god this gets into the topic ricky of impassibility <laughs> um is that one of your key things you like to bring up like the catechism yeah the show that we never do <laughs> about impassibility that so you know we're kind of to, to explain it god being impassable is that he's not moved by his emotions and in one sense this idea of that god is love and that's his. That's part of his essence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he also acts in love and pure act because he acts right as he does is different than as us in humans where we act where our emotions are tied up in our actions. Yeah, and to so when God isn't reacting as if he's moved because some of emotional aspect and so to to think about that you know to use that the language of reaction it's strictly on how we perceive god to us that in our repentance and faith we we receive god's mercy and it mm-hmm. um coming to us and again it, yeah it's looking at that in that case god's acting in his love and his justice because Christ has taken our place on the cross and giving sinners, justifying them um, and making what is right, making this just declaration of you're no longer, now there is no condemnation to use Paul's Mm -hmm. words in Romans 5. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, these all kind of run together. All of our topics keep, wait, what are we hawing at? <laughs> the impassibility comment. Oh, okay. Um, so these all kind of run together, the topics, but that's almost stream of consciousness. That's honestly how our conversations work in a car. But um, I do feel like personally, 
ever since reading Broken Bread and kind of venturing into these topics of excellence and seeing God's goodness in all areas of life, I feel like that has changed our family, the way we talk about things, the way mm-hmm. we express gratefulness, the way we pray, even like um, praying over food. We'll, we do a lot more with our kids around like, thank you, God, for all of the salty and the sweet and the crunchy and um, and talking about our food over dinner, like how God is so good to give us something so tasty and yeah. um, and not just food. I mean, the Tilly Dillahay book was about food, so it made it an easy one to jump on. But just being recognizing God's goodness in so many areas um, and enjoying Him, which is very Piper, which makes sense because Joe Rigney is part of Bethlehem. Bethlehem Seminary, which is John Piper. Right. It's the seminary John Piper started. Yeah. So very um, enjoying, I forget the Piper quote, but the, we are most glorified in God when we're most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in, in us, us when, when we're, we're most satisfied, satisfied in, in him. him. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think too, kind of thinking through, I know Ecclesiastes is kind of like the downer book. Um, I would say Lamentations, but sure, yeah, Ecclesiastes yeah. too. I mean, Ecclesiastes, because you get this vanity is vanity, vapor, sure. this vaporous life. It's almost, almost nihilistic. Yeah. Yeah. But there is a thread in there, I think a lot of times we we lose fact of, is that work has its place, but the call throughout the entire book is to enjoy the life God has given to you Mm -hmm. and enjoying the life that God has given to you. You glorify him. Now, in one sense, we need him to understand how we can glorify in the life he's given to us, resting in his providence. And while he he's governed his everyone in his creation, not to try to quote the Baptist catechism and go for it. I'm here for the catechism. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and to to think about, we don't, like, if you're focused on work, which is a good thing, you're short-sighted in all the other good things God has given to you, like a family, mm-hmm. like a, a community of believers that mm-hmm. you can come to and to think about and to find rest in a weary world and when i think when we start understanding ecclesiastes and not that all of this stuff is is vaporous it's when we make them the end goal that they're vaporous that they're they're striving after the win and that it's only when we place whether it's material things or work or family in relation to how God has designed them to be, do they become the source in which we can now glorify God in the ordinary really? Cause that's kind yeah. of kind of thinking through it in that way. That's the issue yeah. is that I'm not doing big things for God, but it's that, well, we need to rest in the ordinary. Yeah. No one, not everyone's going to be a John Piper or, or a Dr. Moeller or James White or whoever you, the big theologian name mm-hmm. is. But that 
I am called to live now and how I use my time with my kids. Like we've met, I mentioned the show we've talked about today. So when we drive around, we read stories. Yeah. We've read. We love it. All of Narnia. We've read three out of the four books of Andrew Peterson's Wingfeather's Saga. And to use those times to read good books, mm-hmm. classics, good Christian books. Not all of them are necessarily Christian either. Yeah, They're just, just good stories. Classics, comma, okay, Christian. gotcha. And Christian books. Yeah. And, and to think about it, I think that's, again, kind of how do we, in one sense, create a culture in this family to faithfully mingle and create something God has has mm-hmm. given to us? And then how does that work as we branch out into our jobs and church yeah. and all the other facets of life. Yeah. So glory yeah. in the ordinary, we redeem our time in the car, right? Cause yeah. we do a lot of car time driving back and forth to church and everywhere. Cause we're 30 minutes from anywhere. That's yeah. just how it is. And also I have to say, I got this concept from sheologians, but I, um, I found my attitude towards like housework changed when I started seeing more glory in the ordinary from the perspective of like my, uh, in the garden, we were told to have dominion over creation. Yeah. And sometimes having dominion means putting your house back in order for the 14th time that week. (laughs) Sometimes it means just doing the dishes again, but there is glory in that ordinary because I am doing what in the garden we as human beings were called to do. I am bringing order to disorder. Do you have any more thoughts on that before I wrap up with the final topic I wanted to ask you about? No, I think that's... Okay. So um, hopefully a bunch of you listened to G220 Radio last week, Mm -hmm. which is also a topic I was really interested in, um, all about basically biblically why women shouldn't be pastors. And I was very interested because as I mentioned... I went to seminary. I'm one of the few women. And you get questions about this. I do. At work. I do. I get questions at work. I got questions all through college from people asking me, oh, so you're going to be a pastor. And I'd be like, no, no, I don't actually believe women should be pastors. And I have to give like a little exposition of why. Um, So I was really interested in that. And I was glad you guys did this show. So thankful for it. However, I had uh, a valid critique. I don't know that I would even call it critiques. I just think I just think there was an opportunity there to expound even more on what women should be doing in the church. You guys gave some great examples around, especially um, wives. Yeah, but I wanted to point out that a lot of a lot of the women in our church are unmarried or widowed or you know somewhere on yeah. that spectrum. We don't want to just say you know, you only have value if you're a wife or a mother in our church. That is absolutely not true. We would not affirm that at all. Um, but a lot of your examples geared towards um, the helpmeet aspect, which yeah. which is valid. That is something that biblically wives are called to. And I'm, I'm happy to do it. It is a delight of my life to be married to you and to help you think through Sunday school topics and podcast topics. Yes, almost every single episode of G220 is discussed at our dining table prior to it happening. Um, So that is a delight of my heart. But I just think there is 
so much more to be said about women um, getting some theological education, whether that is professionally through school like I did, or better yet, without all the student loans, (laughs) read some good books, talk to your husband, talk to your elders, go get some theological training um, and do hard things with that training. Have difficult conversations dig into difficult passages of scripture. Don't just keep to simpler things, but try to do the hard things. Um, Teach others, not just um, children, although that is vitally needed, uh, but other women as well. And when I say teach them, teach them hard things. So one of my passions about going to seminary is that I should not have had to go to seminary to learn a lot of the things that I found most valuable. Things like inductive study methods, like how do I study the Bible? How do I use a concordance or, um, you know, all these commentaries and different resources that we have? How do I do a word study? You don't necessarily need to know how Greek grammar works to know how to find out that word is also in this passage and here's the context around it. So I I would say, get some education, use it for hard things. If you are teaching a children's Sunday school class, yes, teach age appropriate, teach them the stories because they need to know the stories of the Bible, but also teach them hard things, especially if you're teaching older kids. I taught middle school and early high school for a while that is an age where they're exploring topics. And I used my seminary degree. We did apologetics. We did world religions. We did uh, transmission of scripture. We did Bible study methods. I teach them all the things that you had to learn the hard way and do the, do the hard conversations. Um, same thing with other women in your church. Have those conversations with them. Some of them don't have husbands yet to ask. Some of them are um, young in the faith or they've been in the church forever, but they've never really felt like women had a place digging into scripture. We absolutely do. Um, and I would say there are there are unique aspects to being a woman that God has given us. For instance, the ability to communicate with children. Do you feel, I feel like. I mean, yes, I've learned (laughs) teaching second to fifth grade. Yes. But I'm still not. So. As easy. Yeah. It's not. And I think with it too, and I kind of mentioned it a little bit last week and I probably should have expounded more, but just like in Sunday school, being willing to speak up. I think sometimes is we take a, a right understanding of first Timothy two and the, that there should be no like a, women in authority mm-hmm. and maybe even some passages in first Corinthians about them not permitting not to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's kind of maybe within, I think it's within church service um, in it, but that, that they just can't, like only the men can teach theology. And I think in one, in one sense, in a, and as a Sunday school teacher, I think it's appropriate that a man facilitates that he's doing the lessons, but that a woman, but 
and kind of to expand on what I th- when you're saying that you mean for an adult Sunday school class. for an adult Sunday school yes. class. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. But that when there's that time of discussion, and I think this is probably lead into that um, to, for women to ask questions to better understand theology, to kind of push against the Beth Moore mm-hmm. and their emotionalism that kind of, is saturated in women's Bible study and feminism as studies. And in light of, I mean, I would recommend Kay Arthur is kind of a contrary to that, someone who would teach inductive Bible study, Mm -hmm. Um, but to speak out and to ask questions, but also to help think about it in another way. Cause I know one thing we've talked about, I'm going to do it is that, while I can discuss theology and somewhat can do it off the cuff with no notes, you've kind of been learning and kind of going to is this idea of women embody the theology yes. and how they're in one sense hospitable. I mean, we do monthly lunch um, meals at church on the first Sunday for Sunday meals. And if men were in charge with this, never happened. It would be, if it did happen, be disastrous <laughs> and probably everything would be bacon and or like pizza. Or and you pizza. guys would never clean up afterwards. Yeah. Not that women are the only ones providing food or, or I'm just saying that the, the organizational skills required for, fellowship meals for that needed interaction. That's not just during the worship time. If it, if there were no women in our church, it would not happen. They're just decorating. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking around the children line because we've taught together. I mean, you've done the teaching, but I've been there for um, teaching catechism. I think God has gifted women in a way that he has not gifted men necessarily for, um, <laughs> Thanks, Desi. Um, God has gifted women the ability to communicate with children in a way that not all men are guilt- gifted in. I do think there's some men that are good at it, but yeah. I would say women are naturally good at it, even before having children or or long after. Um, there have been many occasions where you're teaching and I'll go, hold up. I don't think they know that word yet, or or maybe we need to give them an example of what that looks like. Um, But yes, I I would commend to you Eve, Eve in exile. I think it's Eve in exile or Eve out of exile. One of the two. Um, I think it's Eve in exile. It's by Rebecca Merkel, who ironically is a Wilson daughter. Yes. There's a theme. I'm telling you, the Lord has been. She's been reading a lot of people associated. I know. Maybe, maybe I need to be worried about the <laughs> No, just admiring their goodness. But she's excellent at pointing out that God has gifted women to make, take theology, take the hard truths of scripture and make them taste and smell and see beautiful. We're the ones that make the truth of the incarnation smell of cinnamon and feel like wrapping paper and glisten like a tree that's well decorated. Um, so it's it is really taking all of the theology that men teach in our churches, which is wonderful, and making it tangible, making it something that families and other people can come together and taste and see and touch. And I think there is something 
beautiful about that. And even a step further, you know, it's almost like, oh, this is going to sound in, 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 uh, insulting, but you know, the old adage, um, those that can't do teach. (laughs) Yeah. It's almost like the women have gone a step further in taking theology and doing with it and making it, um, making it something we realize in our everyday lives and that the Lord has gifted us to do that. So that would be my critique. Women in the church, go do hard things with your theology. You are not pushed to the side just because the Lord has said that men should be the pastors and should be the ones preaching from the pulpit. Um, Go do all the hard things. Don't just, don't just be satisfied with cooking the meals and showing up like, do hard things. Learn your Bible. Yeah. I think yeah. part of it too, thinking through it just now is, you know, you've been reading a lot about hospitality mm. and thinking through this. There's one sense in which kind of what mothers do in providing for their family, in one sense, when providing in their family is showing hosp- hospitality to a younger, a smaller group. And then kind of, not that men aren't hospitable, but there's something different about women showing hospitality and thinking about and considering Mm. others. Yeah. um, More so than maybe men do. Because, I mean, I go to a men's prayer breakfast coming up this week, at least in my church, and I can tell you right now what we're going to (laughs) have. Eggs, some with cheese, some without Biscuits, uh-huh. gravy, uh-huh. donuts, bacon, sausage. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. There may be, someone may bring food. Fruit. Probably not. Yeah. But that's different than, yeah. Um, I mean, you make scones. Thank yeah. You, so meanwhile, or I guess not George. It's George's wife gave George's me, wife, yeah. yeah. George's wife gave me a scone recipe from England. But meanwhile, while the men are having a prayer breakfast, all the women, bring their massive, their masses of children and come to our house. And we have scones and cinnamon rolls and lots of fruit and all kinds of delicious foods that people bring. And we drink coffee and we fellowship and the kids destroy our house. And I love it. And I don't even care that we have to clean it up later because the kids do. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, normally we teach our kids about hospitality and make them clean up the mess, but But yes, it's another beautiful thing. I would say um, Rosaria Butterfield, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, was formative in me learning about hospitality and how it reflects God's glory. Yeah. Yeah. I know we are at time. We are. So. But hopefully you've enjoyed the Miller conversation. This is a conglomeration of everything we've talked about for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Yeah. We thought about just recording while we're on the road. The audio would be terrible, but it would be pretty funny because there's yeah. no camera. And we also are a little sillier usually. <laughs> we joke around a lot. Yeah. So, but yeah, this is just kind of more laid back show. And thinking about it, watch for G220 Radio. I might post out something. I'll talk probably talk to Ricky too. Um, about maybe doing an ask, like you see the ask me anything's the AMAs. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do it. It might be something fun to do. Um, to think about 
and and to kind of talk about it. Although I feel like people try to stump me. Don't try. It's to do fun. That. I do it all the time. She does. <laughs> um, and there's like other things we could even talk about too. We haven't discussed lately. Not to do it, but like, why are there no Calvinistic backward ch- churches? Yes. Someone out there, someone please come and help me understand why everything in like the country, like the Southern country, like the Hills is Arminian. Where, why did the Calvinists stop like the mountains? How did this happen in church history? I don't know. I've been asking people for years and can't find anyone to talk to me about it. So please, if you know anything about this, find him. Yeah. So but that has been our episode of GH20 Radio. It's episode number 342. Um, Will said Jen and I liked awesome. the form, loved the format. It was fun. I obviously was nervous, but <laughs> um, to kind of think about it, a lot of it is because in the car, I don't have to defend views that I speak. That's true. I but I, I still, I push back. You do push back. And I, I do throw in those technicalities. Yeah. When we're doing like I try to even when the no one's recording to be um fair in my assessments mm. and thinking about and not trying to speak more than I know. Mm. And so this is not just what I do on the podcast and then off the air. I might joke about dispensationalists a lot too though. <laughs> And they're fun to they're fun to poke at, yeah. Um, but just to you know and consider, and that's kind of and how I'm thinking and and pl- kind of placing things. It's not always thinking and talking it out. Places ideas, kind of a little bit of stuff that I've been thinking about. I did a Sunday school lesson on it, and just even mm-hmm. kind of more about the connection between exegesis and theology, obviously then that connection and orthopraxy or the right practice, how those are are connected. And even just even broader to think about baptism and theology and how the, all these work. There's so much that we could have talked about and didn't. So much. Um, and how yeah. it is. And maybe sometimes these are episodes of G220 I'll come to ring is like, I want to talk about this because we've been talking about it beforehand. Oh, because you and I have been chatting. Yeah. yeah. And so you kind of see a little bit of at least the process. Not all the time, but yeah. some of the time just thinking through um, the issues and it's good. That's kind of to leave it is theology is best done in community. Mm. And it's not just the church or, or in a seminary, but I mean, I guess I should say it's not, not just in seminary. It's just like an academic endeavor, but theology is practical mm-hmm. and it's done in community and it's done not just in a local church in the community, but in the kind of the Catholic sense that the little C Catholic, little C Catholic that the saints in the past help us in this development of our mm-hmm. theology. Cause our theology now is not the same as it was in the reformation or in the patristics. We've, we've grown it, we've cultivated it and to, to think about it. And I think in families, there's a replication of that 
and which then is seen on the broader church and then Twitter, of course, because that's where all theology is settled. <laughs> I don't have Twitter. She doesn't. I don't bother with it. That is too and much. And so, <laughs> but to keep, I guess just be like a Midwest or a Southern goodbye, keep going. But this has been <laughs> G220 Radio. Join us next week at 9 o'clock Eastern time next Tuesday. YouTube and Facebook. Um, until next week, God bless. God bless.